When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. As the radio man said, uh, I'm Matt Lawrence. Mike's with me, and this is episode 97. Um, we're going to entitle this one Good Developer Habits. Now, as you may have just heard, I have my ringtones on. It's a bit of a medical situation in my family at the moment, so if you if it, something rings or dings, I apologize. I have to have all my ringtones on. Um, but if you want to support us, come and check us out. Review us on the Apple Podcast. You can also uh, come on the old Patreon. We got a three. There's only a couple of tiers right now, but the three dollar one will give you a shout out in each episode, and we will put a link to a website of your choosing in our show notes. And it also, we shout out the website as well. And the most important one is that we have that Discord server. So come and uh, come and check us out. Come share this podcast. Come join us in our Discord. It's all great. Um, I'm winging these intros for now because I'm trying to figure out a good transitionary episode from our new recorded intro. So, in any case. Mike, weekly pain point, please, sir, take it away. All right. Uh, weekly pain point this week is gardening. Uh, I, like probably many others during this pandemic, have taken up a little bit of gardening on our balcony, and it's been going really well, but this last couple days, we've been noticing these weird insects on our herbs, uh, these little white tick-looking things, like little white little white things that are eating them, I think. I don't know if they're eating them or not, but... Uh, don't know what to do about them. Gonna try to Aphids fix or that. Something? Maybe I don't know. Actually, I was gonna ask you since you're kind of, I mean, your family gardens a little bit. You have a big backyard. You have a pretty big garden back there. Yeah, we got. Quite what do a you bit guys do against them? Do you use pesticides? Like I'm, I'm for whatever. I'm not like an organic farmer here. Um. So we used. Um. We used to use like like you said. We would basically identify the insect or whatever it is, and then just use an appropriate. Uh, an appropriate like chemical thing like you just go to the store and buy it but lately uh we've been basically we'll identify like the season it happens we identify what it is get up the get the appropriate chemical thing but then we look up uh preventative measures so there's been a couple uh of weird ones and this is years ago so recalling from memory we had one where just having eggshells along like the sides of the pot would like get x insect away or keep them away so then what we would do is during the year we'd save up eggshells you know obviously clean them and just crunch them up and then we would do the the organic preventative measure the 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 next year seeing if it would work and then some of our stuff is just fully organic now um in terms of getting rid of them so start with chemical go to organic that's sort of our procedure cool that's uh i'll, I'll try that i heard coffee grounds like fresh coffee grounds that's a big one that's off. a really big one yeah so i might i might try that once i do get rid of them i don't think it'll actually get rid of them as far as i understand it like i do have to do something proactive for that but after that, I might just start with coffee grounds, put it around everywhere just to make sure that we don't get any more of them. And some some things, too, like uh, this isn't necessarily for plants, but, for example, um, many types of ants don't like dish soap. And so w- what I've done before is actually just put out, like, a small line of dish soap and just left it, like, either either on a paper towel with a bit of water and just leave it, or I've just put it directly on, like, a tile floor 
and I've just left it and then obviously clean it later. But it's almost in my experience, again, not a, not a crazy bug guy or anything, but in my experience, they won't go near it. I think it's the scent. I think it's actually, I think it hurts them too. Like it doesn't kill them, but I think it like, they don't like it on their skin um, from what I've read. So it'll actually make them stay away. So stuff like that. I've done that stuff like that just to keep ants and stuff out if there's like a problem in like a crack in the wall or something. So yeah, gardening tips with Matt Lawrence. There we go. Apparently, yeah. yeah. All like all from all from like ten minutes of googling and then a whole bunch of trying. So, but I mean that's <laughs> I that's the best is, way but... you can do it. Like for someone that has almost zero experience with it on on a long term basis, like I've planted stuff over the years, especially at my grandparents' house, but I never had to maintain it. Right. It's right. best to learn from someone that's actually had to maintain it and done all this crazy stuff already. So dead leaves. Good tips. If like you, it. If you had those, what? What was it? Dead leaves. De- dead keep leaves, those no. for uh, fertilizer. Good stuff. And it, Good they stuff. smell fucking horrible, so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> like, like so horrible to the point where I'm in the background gagging because I can't oh. take it. That's yeah, why no, I'm not going to be doing that on a tiny, like not a tiny balcony, but like a, on a balcony. I'm not going to have dead leaves smelling like death. It's, it's, yeah, it is particularly gross. So, yeah, uh, I guess my weekly pain point is hospital stuff. I've been dealing with some family stuff. Uh, nothing too, too severe, but I do have a family member hospitalized at the moment. So just dealing with their affairs until they get back as such as my ringer is on, like I said, but this is a mic heavy episode. So I'm going to let him sort of take it away. And then I did up the web news and take it away, sir. All right. Uh, So good developer habits. Let's talk about them. Um, So yeah, I just want to kind of go over a few of the things that have worked for me. uh, And Matt can chime in if they work for him or if he has any more that he he wants to add. That's fine too. But yeah, let's take it away right right off the bat. Let's hope they help. Uh, First thing here is finding your most productive time and using it for deep work sessions. So this is kind of a simple one to understand, but uh, there's a lot to it. So essentially... Everyone has a different time that they're most effective in. And because we're allowed to work from home now with with the pandemic and a lot of people were working from home because we're developers anyway and we usually are allowed to, uh, you can kind of flex your schedule to accommodate for those times. So for some people, it's early in the morning. You know, some people have different sessions. And for me, actually, I fall under the the different sessions. So I'll have a really good deep working session in the morning, anywhere between like eight and 9am to like about 11am, I can work really well. And I can have like a good amount of work done, my brain works really well, all that. Uh, And then I kind of taper down up until lunchtime. And then after lunch, usually around one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, I'll have another deep work session. And again, these deep work sessions can be anywhere from like two hours, three hours, to uh, maybe even 25 minutes, uh, 25 minute blocks. It could be, you know, three hours, two hours. Like it's, it's in between there. It depends on how you're feeling that day. But I find that if I don't stay to those sessions, I get a lot less done. So let's say I have a busy morning of calls instead of my deep work session. I'll find that that day is a lot less productive than if I schedule my calls and my meetings for the time that I'm not, I'm, I'm less effective. So that's kind of that, that's my idea of how to schedule around your uh, productive time. Now, again, not everyone has the luxury. A lot of people are forced to work their nine to fives. And then in that case, again, it's the employer that's really missing out the most, not not only you, because they're not getting the most work from you for the time that they're giving 
you to work on it because you're not going to, you know, if you're working nine to five and they don't give you any extra hours to work, no overtime, then what's the point of you going and working in the evening if that's when you work best and helping out your employer for no money? You're not going to do that and you nor, nor should you. So if you have that kind of situation where you're more of a evening worker, uh, like late night worker, maybe it's best to actually speak to your employer and be like, hey, um, I work best at 8 p.m. to about 12 a.m. or 1 a.m. And that's when I get all my like my essential work done. Can we flex it so that I will, you know, work? I can work half days in the morning so I can stay on the calls. But then at, at in the evening, I'll get on and do the other half day. And then anywhere between like 12 and 5, I'll have to myself. So you can do whatever the heck you want, obviously. But I find that if I schedule my days around these work sessions, I get a better day out of it. And I actually kind of want to toss something in. So I'm definitely a, a weird worker. Sometimes I'll work super, super late. Sometimes I'll work uh, till maybe like 11, which is super late for some. But for me, something like I just don't go to bed all that, like all that early. I'll go to bed at, you know, 3 a.m. Is a, is a commonplace time for me to go to sleep kind of thing. And so I, I will say that sometimes people will limit themselves. So Mike, Mike's saying you know, sort of the, con- the constraint of the nine to five. But I find that sometimes people will limit themselves just due to something else that could be moved. So, for example, I hear people say like, well, it's, you know, it's six. I have to eat now or it's, you know, it's eight. I have to do this now or but in reality. You are in control. You might have some stuff that can't move due to other obligations. Certainly, of course, maybe you have to pick your kids up or something after school and which you're not going to be able to change the school day to flex to have flexible hours. But. Short of something along those lines, you realistically have control of that. And there's been times where I've been I've been like, well, you know, you're going to be tired tomorrow, but maybe because you're in the mood or maybe you're just going to rip through this. Why don't you just stay up that extra hour and just sort of finish X thing? Right. And whereas some people would argue with me saying, hey, that's unhealthy, you know, telling someone to stay awake. That's just sort of what I do. So Michael get text messages that he'll check in the morning for me sometimes at 4 or 5 a.m. because I'll be in bed. I can't sleep. So then I just pull out my iPad or maybe I'm on my phone and I'll look up articles or ideas for the podcast or look up ideas or even research stuff that I'm doing for clients. That's just sort of how I deal with it where I think, well, I'm awake anyway. I'm not like I'm having the greatest time just laying here. I may as well look something up and try to be a little bit productive so that if I want to sleep in a bit because I have been awake, obviously, then I can actually do that and not be super stressed. And then if a client calls, I can say, hey, this is the situation I've been looking at. I was looking at X last night. This is what I was doing. Or, oh, I, you know, now when I sit down, I know exactly what I want to start on type of thing. So I think I just feel like being having flexible work hours is key, but you being flexible with your time as well is is key. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and the, the big the big takeaway from that is, again, like, sometimes you work late at night, but as long as you don't have to have that nine to five, you can wake up, you know, 10, 11, 12am, or 12pm, and still have a full day. So you, you adjust your schedule based on how your body works. Again, everyone's body is different, everyone reacts differently to these things. Um, and it's best to actually, you know, listen to your own body. And sometimes that takes some time. So if you've always been a nine to five person and you think that your best time is, you know, in that nine to five period, maybe you're right, but maybe you're wrong because you've never tried it. So maybe you should try an evening work session. Maybe you should try like a, a really early morning work session. Try different things and see what works best for you. It's 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 a good idea to sometimes like 
also change it up because we change over time. Uh, and sometimes you'll grow out of your working session. So maybe, you know, late at night worked well for you when you were 18, 19, 20, 21, but now you're changing more towards a morning session. So again, every once in a while, change it up, see what works best for you and try to stick to that for as much as you possibly can allow your job allows, if your job allows it. And I actually have a comment on that too. Um, so one of the things that people will, one of the more strict things they'll do with themselves is to have a very specific bedtime. Now, I know that there's evidence out there, or at least at least my sleep app tells me, that I should be trying to sleep or have a, a consistent bedtime and a consistent wake-up time. And I assume that's based in science somewhere. Again, I don't know. I'm just trusting an app's pop-up. But to me, and maybe this is you too, maybe you're just being too strict on yourself, to me, I just sort of go to sleep when I'm exhausted. And I have a, quite a few friends, actually, that have the same thing. I don't know whether that's the healthiest thing in the world or whatever, but it does allow me to be productive where sometimes I'll, sometimes if I'm, let's say, working on something earlier in the day, I don't quite get as far as I'd like. So then I go and I have plans that night, like leisurely plans. I go out with friends or whatever. So I go do that. Then when I come back, most people would say, okay, you got to go to sleep so you can wake up early and do work. Sometimes I, I'm in the mood. I'm already awake. I'll just say, well, it's two in the morning or three in the morning, but I'm ready to do this. Let's just go edit the podcast now. I'll finish at five, go to sleep at five, whatever. Because there's no, in terms of productivity, I don't know about sleep health. Please consult the doctor about that. But in terms of my own productivity, now I'm actually personally going to sleep better because not only am I now really tired because it's five in the morning, but I'm also going to be going to have that one less thing the next day, that one less thing on my plate. And now I'm just not worried about it and not thinking about it. And personally, I'm going to sleep better. Yeah, exactly. And person to person, it's all different. Um, I think as long as you're getting your sleep every day, it's that that's the important one. And then on top, like, yeah, for some people, maybe the consistency of sleep is really important. And again, like you said, consult your doctor if you're having issues with sleep, especially maybe don't try this. But uh, if you're comfortable, you know, changing up your schedule on a daily basis, then totally do it and get get the most most out of your day as you can while maintaining health obviously um, but with that let's move on to the next developer habit here and that's using version control right from the start so we've talked about this quite a bit uh, with version control I'm referring to git usually I know there's mercurial or something like that uh, I've never used it don't plan on using it unless I have to um, git has been just perfectly fine for all my projects and I'll stick to that uh, but yeah the idea is when you start coding whether that be your first time coding or whether that be just starting up a project, it's sometimes, uh, you know, better or like you, it feels faster to just go and start like a new project without doing any sort of Git initialization and start write, writing code as fast as possible. I would say jump back on that a little bit and start your project with your Git repository because it'll help you avoid having many, many issues down the road because a lot of the time, and let's, be, let's face it, if you say you're 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 gonna do it later, you don't do it later, or you do it way too late, or you do it like you know a month down the line, and at that point the Git repository is already kind of mature, and you don't have the advantage of Git, which is the version control aspect. So what it allows you to do, if you do set it up from the very beginning, it allows you to kind of see a history of your code, and the history of your code will make you a better programmer in the in the end because. As you go through iterations of your project, versions of your project, you'll 
you'll see that you're optimizing certain things. You'll see that you're, you're creating a better structure and stuff like that. And when you go and you have to look back at an issue, maybe, or something that you, you did a long time ago, you'll see the growth and that'll motivate you to keep moving forward. Not only that, uh, when you're applying for jobs, when you're uh, looking for advancement in your workplace, a lot of the time they'll look at your Git repos and they'll see how you're managing your projects. And if they see that you, you know, check in once a month, then they don't know what you're doing in between that month time. Like they don't, they don't have a very good analysis of your workflow. They don't know how you, how you code. But if you're checking in consistently daily, like, you know, a couple times a week, whatever, as long as it's consistent and often, uh, they can see a history of how you're progressing. So they, they don't really care about how you started. They want to see how you're doing and how if you're moving up, if you're understanding their concepts, if you're understanding, if you're if you're learning something new, if you're creating better structure code, they want to see improvement for the most part. Um, and that's how you can show improvement with this version control. Uh, so that's just one of the benefits. The other benefits are you'll prevent data loss. Again, version control allows you to restore backups, like restore old older versions. I don't rely on it solely uh, because who knows what can happen to the repo. It could get deleted. Uh, if you have multiple people in a repo, especially, it can get really f- frustrating to restore backups because you don't know which branch to restore and stuff like that. So I do manual backups as well on top of it but it does help in in a lot of instances if you have the git repo for like as as a backup as well well to clear to clarify for people as well that maybe don't um it's you're when you're doing like when you push when you push your code to to let's say github it's actually basically cloud storing that code just as an fyi it's not like you have like a backup folder on your computer somewhere it's actually storing it so you on their servers so that you could pull it down to say your secondary computer Exactly. And when you do a change to that code and you push that change, it's storing the fact that you made a change and the change that you made. So it's storing kind of two different things. And the way it manages data, instead of storing, you know, two separate files, it'll actually store just the change of that file. So it manages so that the the, the package doesn't become, you know, ridiculously big because you're constantly duplicating, duplicating, duplicating. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty smart in that way. But the other thing that it can help you prevent is regression bugs. So regression bugs are something like, let's say you create a feature for, for your project and you're working on the feature for a couple of weeks and then you create that feature and there's a, there's a bug that you see and you fix that bug and you have the feature. Now, a week down the line, you have another feature that you're working on. Uh, and you create that and you create that feature. And then all of a sudden, when you're creating that feature, the same bug that you had before happens again because what you did was you kind of did the exact same workflow that you did for the for the previous bug and didn't even didn't notice it because again like you can't keep everything in your head what git allows you to do is then go back to how you fixed it before and apply that same knowledge because again it has that version control aspect or even revert a previous commit and then see that if it works you can do ab testing in that way like you can you can kind of revert a previous commit see if everything is okay there uh, or a previous version, and then see what's the, what's the difference between the two versions, which will also prevent bugs. Uh, it'll allow you to have multiple development environments. So a lot of the time, people work on multiple computers. Like if you have you know a work computer and a home computer, and you want to do some work from home, a lot of you, all you have to do is just pull down your repo, and you're good to go. Now it, it does involve more than that. You'll have to set up your development environment. You have to set up your servers. It depends on how complex your project is. But the Git repo is a really good start for that. And a lot of the time now, uh, there's this thing called Docker, which will set up your development environment for you. 
Um, I've kind of delved into it a little bit more last last few days or last few weeks. And it's really, I could see it being really powerful, especially for team environments where they have more complex structures like, you know, a, ser- a server side component, a database and a middleware or something like that, plus the front end. If you have four of those and you need to set up a consistent environment, something like Docker inside of a Git repo is really powerful because all you have to do is run this one command called Docker Compose Up and it'll build everything for you, et cetera, et cetera. I think... We, we have had an episode on Docker, so go check it out. I think in the future, we will do another deeper dive on Docker because there's a lot to talk about with it. Next thing here is not being afraid to look it up. So again, something we've talked about in the past many times, but I want to reiterate. What you think, you, you, what you think might be an issue and you, you're the only one that's experienced is most likely an issue that a lot of people have experienced. And if you just do a quick search on Google or a quick search on the documentation, you'll, you have a way better chance of solving the issue than just sitting there and hitting your head against the wall and trying a million different things on your own without looking anything up. So that's why I kind of, the, one of the first things I do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the first, I'll try a few common things that I always do for every issue, but then I'll go and look it up because there's no point in wasting my time. There's no point in wasting your client's time. There's no point in wasting your company's time if someone's already solved it for you and the code's readily available or the idea of the solution is readily available somewhere and you can implement it yourself. Always don't be afraid to go and look up look up stuff on Google. I know a lot of developers have told me personally that they're, they, they think that they're a less of a developer if they Google almost all the issues that they have. And I don't think that at all because it shows that you have... The knowledge to solve issues, solve problems. It shows that you have the knowledge of how to Google the, the issue because that's not an easy skill to learn either. It takes a lot of experience and it takes a lot of screwing up and you know doing a bunch of different things because the better developer you are, essentially, the better you are at Googling issues. <laughs> uh, actually, that... oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, actually, like one way to put it um, is you're not, you're not really gaining when you're learning as you slowly slowly learn and you build up your knowledge like you're saying a lot of people a lot of devs will think they're less because they keep looking things up consistently but in reality you're not really gaining knowledge of that syntax and of that programming knowledge like yes you are in the interim but the instant you're the instant you move on to another project that's in a different code base it's gone that knowledge is going to be gone that that syntax all that's going to be gone but what stays with you is the expertise you are actually just slowly gaining expertise in whatever you're doing. I equate it in loosely to if you say call yourself a JavaScript expert and you know about all a whole bunch of different things about JavaScript, you know, how to how to like write write the code, how to conveniently save stuff, how to do all the rest of it, like every every little bit, right? Not going to get into it cuz it's obviously a full programming language. But if you go into let's say Stack Overflow or a popular forum, you go into Stack Overflow, a popular forum, and you actually go and you look and you see in, in, in the JavaScript section a bunch of questions that you don't know how to answer. That's just because those people, they may have the exact amount of experience as you do, but there there's so many complexities with code and there's so many different there's so many different wildcards that all you're gaining throughout your career is just purely one hundred percent expertise. Taking it to something that I know really well, and Mike does too, IT, if you think about it, when there's an issue, I can kind of tell you, you know, it's probably this, it might be, like, I can, I can almost say, almost say, it's probably hardware, uh, you know, it's probably the hard drive, it's probably the, the RAM, or I can say, 
you know, it's probably software. It sounds like a Microsoft service going crazy. And I have different things in my in my own sort of expertise toolkit, if you will, where maybe I'll make a new user account and see if the, the corruption is there. Is it that drive? Let's move that around. Those are things that are in my expertise. But every single issue, short of it being something routine and regular and something like that, like a hard drive failure, short of it being that, you need to look it up because Windows and everything else is constantly, constantly changing. And that you'll you'll see that same change in Stack Overflow questions in, say, the JavaScript section from five years ago to today. The questions will be completely different. Certainly, there'll be some overlap because you'll be in one category, but you're still going to be confused by questions five years ago, and you're going to be confused from questions today, and those questions themselves are going to be different. The main thing is that you need to know your field. You need to know how to do the, how to do that Googling. You need to know how to tackle the issue and you need to know how to phrase your own question if you need to ask somebody else or ask on Stack Overflow. And then you still have thousands of people that are going to see your question potentially, but only maybe five, 10, depending on how popular your question are, are going to answer. And that's because those people are experiencing a similar thing or are currently working in or recently worked on a similar environment or a similar code base or a similar project that you're working on right now. But those other thousands of people, whereas some probably didn't care and just passed by, there's literally probably going to be hundreds, if not thousands, that knew or that didn't know how to answer your question because they just don't know the answer straight up. And that's because they just, there's just too much. Tech is huge and there's no way you're going to remember all that. I can't remember how much RAM is in my watch and I wear it every day, right? It's just something that I just don't. And people just don't retain because it's not needed. I'll just go Google this watch, figure out how much RAM's in it. Same thing with programming problems. Exactly. And not not only don't don't people retain it, they shouldn't retain it. That's that's kind of the argument that I make as well. When you're learning different technologies, especially if you're a develop like a full stack developer and you're working over a startup and you have a bunch of projects that you're working on and they're in different stacks, you should not, and I repeat, you should not become an expert to the point where you memorize the syntax of every language that you know. Because if you do, you're not going to get anything done. It's just, I mean, unless you're, unless you have perfect memory, like there's some people out there that have like, you know, photo, photo, quote unquote photographic memory. I know it doesn't exist, but it's, there's are people that are close to that. Uh, they might be a different, in a different ballpark. But again, the regular person should not memorize every little programming concept every time they do a problem. When you do something 5, 10, 15 times because of something like, for instance, you're you're writing an if statement in JavaScript, if that's something that you've done 15, 20 times, you don't need to look up the syntax, great. You know, don't, don't you know, berate yourself the fact that you memorize something, but don't go out of your way to read documentation 15 times just, to, just so you don't have to go and look it up again. Because the fact that you know where to look in the documentation, that's all you need to know. Yeah, that's it. 100%. And the fact that you can go in, look at the documentation, and then use that knowledge, that's a different step, and it's a great step, and that's what people are looking for. Like that's If I'm going to be looking for another developer to work with, that's the kind of stuff that I'll be testing him on. I'm not going to be testing him on, you know, write me this syntax, like a JavaScript function that can, you know, sort an array without any sort of documentation that can do X, Y, and Z. Like I'm not going to tell him to do that, like from his head. There's going to be some simple concepts like what's an if statement in pseudocode, what's a for loop, what's a while loop. Those simple concepts, yes, understand what they are. But to implement them, that's a different that's a different knowledge base and that's something that you shouldn't keep in your mind unless it, you know again, you've done it over and over again. 
With that though, uh, I'll move on to the next one here, which is knowing when to switch tasks or take a break. So this one's a pretty big one too, um, because it'll make you a more effective developer. So it's one of those things that help you avoid lost time. No one likes to leave a problem unsolved, but sometimes when all you're doing is bashing your head against the wall, it's better to just take a step back and try to focus on something else. I mean, we've all been there, like, you know, same same issue, tried 15 different ways to approach it. Nothing's working. It's just making us more frustrated, more frustrated. Like we have that buildup of frustration. I know when, I know when I'm there because... I start swearing a lot. <laughs> That's kind of an indication. I uh, I start trying things that don't make any sense just just to see if they'll work. Stuff like that. That those are the indicators for myself where I'm like, okay, I'm getting to the point where I'm not gonna get. I'm not gonna solve this unless I miraculously like you know stop stop on the issue. So what I'm gonna do is if I'm not that frustrated, I'll move on to a different task because I, I'm usually when I'm working, I have like a task list. Usually when I'm working, I have multiple projects. So I can even switch to a completely different project if I want to. I know I don't recommend doing that a lot, but sometimes it does help to get your mind completely off one task and focus com- on completely something else. Or if I'm to the point where I am swearing and I am bashing my head against the wall and I don't want to be there, I'm not like, I'll just stand up and I won't be there because that's the flexibility that we have when we're working remotely when we're working for ourselves when we're working with a flexible team flexible schedules we can take a break take a half hour go for a walk do some exercise watch some tv play a game whatever get your mind off of it go to sleep because sometimes it's at night that that helps the most like if you just go to sleep and completely forget about the task that's the best way you come back with a fresh mind try different things knowing when to actually step back from something is a, is a skill that is developed over time. Don't beat yourself up because you're not doing it right away, but it's something that you should be aware in yourself. What's the point where I'm not as effective? Like, what's the point where I'm trying things for no reason? What's the point where I'm getting angry for no reason? That's Those are the indicators for you to actually take a step back. So with that, uh, next thing here is writing human-readable code. And this is kind of, I, I, I mean, I've been preaching this all along, but it's I've always been on the side of less comments and cleaner code. Uh, if you write on up on up damn it! If you if you write unobtrusive code, code that you can actually read. So instead of writing like you know var a var b, actually write like var uh, page num, var image number, whatever. If you actually write the variable that is actually referencing, or write the function that's actually write a function that's actually doing something, like in English, like this function. So if the function is Iterating it over an array of images, uh, you know, the function name can be uh, iterate image array, something like that, something simple and clean. When you're writing that kind of code, what it helps you do is if you need to come back later, and you will, just trust me on this, you're writing, you're you're doing a project and you think, oh, I'm never going to go back to this project. You will. And not only that, not only will you at some point come back to it, maybe your team members might come come back to it. Or maybe you're working in an environment where you're constantly sharing code. In that case, it's a necessity. And you should develop this habit right right from the very beginning. Because if you're writing for a multiple, for a multi-team project, multi-person project, everyone needs to be able to read your code. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there in meetings all day explaining every little piece of your code. And your your team members are going to hate you most likely for it. Because you're wasting their time, you're wasting your own time, your boss is going to get pissed off because you're... And then second of all, if you're writing everything being like extremely arbitrary, so again, if you use var a, var b, uh, function one, function two, instead of actually writing names, 
and then you're writing comments on top of it. So you're writing, you know, you're writing comment. This, this, this variable is the image number variable. Var a is equal to whatever. And then next one is the same thing. You, you, you write the comment of exactly what it is. You're wasting your time. And you're wasting the people that are reading its time because, again, they have to read the, the comment in full, then connect it to the variable that hopefully you've, you've clearly, like, you know, written the comment beside it or on top of it, which you're going to screw up anyway. So write clean code as much as you possibly can. Again, it's a habit. It's one of those things where you have to just do it over and over again. Get code reviews. People will tell you what they don't understand, what they do understand. Fix those things. So when they when someone doesn't understand something, fix it so that they do. Write it in a way that makes sense to them, and that'll make your code better. Next thing here is knowing when to get feedback. So this is a big one, um, and it's actually something that is not covered a lot. So the idea of this is when you're working on a project, it's always scary to get feedback on it before it's finished in quote unquote finished. So we don't know when a project is going to be finished and that is that where the, that's where the problem lies in. So if you're working on something and you want to make something perfect and you want, you know, your entire vision is put into it and you want to, you know, spend five months on it. And then you're like, okay, it's in the state where I can show it. And you go and show it to someone, show it to your friends or show it to the target audience that you're building it for. And they're like, well, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. Why did you do it like that? Like, I, you know, when I go in and I do my, uh, if it's an accounting program, when I go in and I put it in my invoices, I do it like this X, Y, and Z. And they tell you how they do it. Getting that feedback early on would have helped you avoid all of those problems because right now you have a stable code base. What you have to go do is rewrite your stable code base. You don't like you have to do a lot of work to do that. Everyone knows when they get to that stable code base, it's it's kind of a pain to add features to change everything from scratch. There's a lot of things. There are a lot of times where you have to rebuild from scratch. Uh, Matt and I have talked about it. List by Design is a prime example where we've uh, it's an app that's kind of like a bookmark manager app, and we built it one way. We put a lot of time into it, and then we got feedback, and the users are like, don't know how to use it. Like, this isn't the way I use these apps. And we had multiple users say that. And we're like, oh, shit, now we have to go re rebuild it. Had we gotten feedback even earlier, like we got feedback pretty early, but had we gotten feedback even earlier, we would have saved us a lot of time and we would have built the app better and it would have been a lot more extendable. Like, it, it, there's a lot of benefits to it. So when you have, the, the, the idea is make something that you can show the target audience. Whether that be a very simple MVP of your app, like a very, you know, doesn't have to be design, designed out perfectly. It doesn't have to work perfectly as long as you can explain it away. It can even be high fidelity, click through demo or something like that, like just images. Don't be afraid to show it just because you might, you might get your feelings hurt that, you know, the, your idea isn't the right one because your idea most likely won't be the right one off the, right off the bat. You want to get that feedback. You want your friends to be like, well, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. I would use it like this, this, this. And then you can implement those changes and make your app way better right from the get-go. Now, there's a disclaimer to this. If you go and ask one of your best friends to look at your app and he like, you know, rips it apart or says it's amazing, that's not enough of a data point. And that's why you have to get a at least a, a few people and a few people from different demographics, hopefully, in, in your target audience so that you can see if their criticism line up. Because, again, 
users don't know exactly what they want. So you have to take that into account as well a little bit because they're going to ask for stuff that doesn't make sense sometimes. Like, and, and second of all, they're going to ask for things that you can't do. They're going to ask you to be like, hey, can you pull in the entire internet for this for, for whatever reason? Like, it'll just make, you know, my life one second easier. Like, can you just pull in the entire, I just want to, I just want the internet. Just, just, just in this app, just pull it in. It's no problem. They'll, they'll say stuff like that because they don't know the technical side. It's not their fault. Uh, but you have to be, you have to explain why you're not doing that and then explain and then put on top of it, be like, but this, this, and this will make it better. You know what I mean? So that's the kind of feed, like that's the way to deal with feedback. And on that note, um, I don't know if people have listened or known about this, but I've started a live stream on Twitch where I'm going through creating this little D&D monsters app with Vue.js. And one of the next episodes we're going to be doing is actually bringing in a couple of my friends that are D&D dungeon masters. And we're going to show them the app, and it's in very early stages. You'll see if you ever if you ever take a look at it on Twitch, uh, HTML, all the things. And I'm going to go through them and be like, "Hey, this is my idea. Is it something that you can like? Where does it need to improve? Is it something that you would use? What is what are the features that you would need for you to use this? And we're going to take their feedback and we're going to implement it almost right away, at least as much as I possibly can, and then bring them back in at some at a later stage and be like, "Now, what what about now?" And that'll show the feedback process because you want to get feedback early and often. That's the that's the phrase that people say. There's also another thing too I was going to say is there's an art to asking for feedback sometimes. So what I'm thinking of specifically is a point in which you have some something complete, whether the actual project is complete or whether a certain section of the project is complete and you need to show it to the client. They're expecting it. If you say you completed it early earlier than the deadline, let's just hypothetically say the deadline is on Tuesday, you completed it on Friday night. You might want to strategically, A, sleep on it and have the weekend and then check on it on Monday and then send it into them. That might just allow you to be more comfortable where you're like, you know, you were exhausted on Friday, you finally finished it, end of the day, I'm done with this thing over the weekend, I'll just check on it on Monday and send it. But it also offers a bit of a feedback, a bit of a feedback buffer, if you will. So, you are going to be super, super annoyed if you send this thing in at 4.30 or 5 p.m. on a Friday to your client and they're just so happen to be at their computer and then they start sending you feedback in which you're in which now you're going to be thinking of all weekend. So sometimes it's just best, especially if you're a person and I'm one of them, where I just get annoyed and end up usually fixing it or commenting back and then it's a whole weekend conversation of, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth conversation, which is fine, which is what you wanted, but not on your days off sort of thing. So if you're super done with something on like on a Friday, or if you're just super done with it that day, and you're going to come back the next day, don't be afraid to A, sleep on it, and B, just delay within reason until you actually want that feedback. You don't need someone complaining about the headings on something when you spent all day working on the whole thing and it has sliders and images and light boxes and more complex UI elements like that, only to have them say, why is the headline not in font size 30? And then you're like, oh, here we go. And now we got to you know, take that apart. And now that head that heading looks weird and you're messing around with it. And then before you know it, you're it's 9 p.m. You're still at the office trying to work on some feedback when you could have just waited for Monday. So one of the ways that I kind of 
avoid that issue for the most part is that early stage feedback, that first set of drafts that, you know, the wireframes. I like to have a live session with the client or with the target audience, whatever, however your project is working. Like if you're building a website for a client, then it's a client. And if you want that feedback, because what, what it does is it helps stop those thoughts right, right as they become. Because as soon as you show him that, he'll be like, oh, what that heading? And then you'll be like, no, no, no. We're not talking about the heading right now. Like that'll be worked out at a later date. We're talking about X, Y, and Z. And you can write that in an email and all that, but They're gonna ignore I'm sorry, They're no, gonna one, ignore no one is going to read that email. No one reads emails. I don't know what it is. I don't even read them. I don't think like maybe I do. I try to, but like maybe I don't read them because I don't think, I don't think emails actually work for the most part. It's a good way to keep accountability <laughs> and keep a, like a paper trail. But other than that, sometimes you do need to get on a call. That early one is the most important one. After that, once you set expectations, it's a little bit easier to just send them it and get the feedback in because, again, you've made it clear what you're looking for in that initial call. Um, that's how, how I try to avoid it. But you're right. Get your feedback when you feel you're going to be comfortable receiving it. Like on a Friday night, if you don't want to ruin your weekend, if you're if you're strong against like, you know, if you if you take it to heart sometimes, then uh, do it on a Monday or a Tuesday. That that is a, that is good advice in general. Um, all right. Uh, next thing here is becoming a strong debugger. So debugging is not just a skill you'll need every once in a while. It's something you'll be using literally on a daily basis. Um, there are plenty of tools to help you with this, but just getting deep into your code and understanding it, understanding the workings of how you're writing, like understanding how that for each function works that you're using on that array, understanding how map works, understanding stuff like that. Will help you on. Will help you know where to start looking in your code when a problem arises, right? So if you have an error in your code that has something to do with having too many elements in an array, or having or reading, um, you're trying to read an element before it's been initialized. Like you're trying to read a name of an object before you even put an object in there. Stuff like that will give you if if you understand how that object works you'll know where to look because you'll be like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm initializing the object over here. I should be initializing it over there. Then also you can use tools. Like I've, I've always said Chrome Dev Tools. I use it tons. Uh, on the live stream, like I said before, I've kind of, I kind of went through a bunch of the debugging that I've, that I've been doing. Put breakpoints, uh, check with, use console logs, whatever works for you, right? But become good at it and become okay with it. That's another thing. I know a lot of people kind of, fear debugging, like fear issues, that's not a good place to be. And you should welcome it. You should be like, you should write your code manageable fast as, and as fast as possible and clean, but you should be willing and know that there's going to be issues and you're ready to solve them. That's the state that you should be in to be in, to be a good developer. That's a habit that you should have is writing the code and getting ready to de debug whatever. That's kind of, I think that's kind of when I knew that I was getting the hang of it. When I was like, I'm okay with this failing because I know where to look if it fails. Where, where would you say people should go to learn how to debug? Because I remember years ago, I was just debugging with, I mean, I still do this because I don't touch it, touch it that all that much, but console logs and stuff like that, where like, I know, like, it works like you know i clearly i know where to like i know something's wrong in here so i'm using console logs to figure out where stuff is but you said oh go into the d i think it was the debug tab and in, in the inspect element and you 
you put in some breaks and all this other crap. Like, where would you suggest going to learn those particular tricks that are better than just constantly rerunning the thing and checking console logs? And you're like, oh, the problem's not here. The problem's not here. The problem's not here. Because that's kind of what console.log becomes. Uh, I got taught it, like, in a working session with a developer that I was working with. Oh, okay. Um, so that's where I learned it. But there's plenty of resources online. Like, if you Google... Chrome developer tool, dev tools, debugging, mm-hmm. it'll go through every step. Like there's, there's network debugging, performance debugging. There's again, console log debugging. And each one has a purpose. Like I still use console logs every once in a while. If I need consistent outputs and I need to see what's going on every time. So I don't have to break point every time I'll use a console log. But a lot of the time, what the breakpoint allows you to do is see where your variables at are at, at that specific breakpoint, at that specific point in the code. So not only do you like, you know, see where the error can be, you see what you're like, again, that frame Im- um, or image num variable, what it's, what it's set to, what's your image actually set to, like what, if you're using an API, you can check what your response was in the API, stuff like that. So you can check everything inside of that breakpoint current, that's currently happening in your code. And that helps, for me, that probably solves like, 80% of my issues is as long as I can see what's inside, what's happening at that specific time in the code before the error occurs, I'll be like, oh, you know what? It was because there was no name in this object and it needed a name. And so I'll go back and I'll set the name earlier or something like that. So that that's where I learned it. Again, I'm sure YouTube has, I'm sure Medium has, I'm sure Dev.2 has tons of tutorials on Chrome DevTools. If you want, I, I can I can look up some and we can link it in the show notes. Sure. Let's do that. Um, but essentially, yeah, be willing to debug. And as the more you debug, the better you become. That's it. Uh, next thing and last thing here is managing communications. Uh, this is a big one because usually developers work in teams and it's important to be able to communicate efficiently with your project managers as well as your fellow developers. If you're not properly managing that communication, it can take up way too much time. And it can cut down on your coding time, which will hurt not only the people that you're talking to usually, but it'll hurt your boss and it'll hurt the project deadline. It'll, you know, extend everything. So make sure you have a calendar for scheduling meetings. Uh, You're not just doing it willy nilly on a notepad or something, or you're just doing it in your head. Have a calendar so you can actually do weekly audits and see if those meetings are taking up too much time. And if they are, then maybe you can either cut down on a couple meetings. Maybe you can move a couple meetings so that they're outside of your uh, peak programming hours, like we talked about in the first uh, habit. So just try to try to schedule meetings when you're not going to be your most efficient. Like you don't want to schedule them when you're asleep because then you're going to be asleep. You're going to miss the meeting, or you're not going to be paying attention because you're you want to sleep. But schedule them in the times like around lunch. I I usually like to do a lot of meetings around there, either like right before lunch, after lunch, because I usually need some spin up time after lunch and before lunch. I just I'm okay with taking a little bit of time uh, to to talk to people. Uh, and then like at the end of my work day, I usually have, a, I can have a few meetings and stuff like that. But during my peak hours for programming, I try my best and it doesn't work all the time because, you know, you have to be wary of some of other people's schedules and, but I try my best to schedule them around so that they don't get into my peak programming hours. But also on the other hand, don't be afraid of meetings as well, because you need to be able to communicate. That's another thing. I communication is really, really key. It doesn't have to be daily, 
But a daily, you know, 20 minute dev standup is a really good thing to have on a project because it allows you to, you know, have that check in, make sure that no one, ha- no one's blocking each other, make sure that all the, everything that you need is being passed on. So sometimes it takes a couple of days to get something that you need. So if you have a daily check-in, it'll accelerate that because if, you, if it's weekly, you'll obviously have to wait a couple of weeks in, in that, uh, in that kind of scenario. But again, meetings are a really complicated thing. A lot of the time they are heavy on stuff that you don't need. So you got to be able to balance it. Yeah, it's it, meetings can are always sort of associated with a, with a time sink and with, with a time sink and people just oh basically a time sink and an eye roll is basically what I'm trying to get at where people are like oh like here we go we gotta go talk to Bill again or whoever um you know it's a whole it's a whole thing where but there are if if planned correctly if if planned correctly if you have people that are that are essentially presenting if they have their stuff together and if you're actually tackling things and it just doesn't become a chat fest then for the most for the most part those meetings are extremely crucial. Um, sometimes I find that meetings tend to balloon in terms of how many people are included within them. So it'll be like, yeah, let's just have the accountant on this one. And then you guys end up talking about, I don't know, the LEDs in your computer for some reason. And it's like, why is the accountant here? Why aren't, why isn't only the technologist guys, like the technology guys in here? Why is the accountant in here? And I found that a lot, um, where you just kind of sit on mute I've been in tons of meetings where I just sort of sit on mute and then it's like I s- announce my presence in the beginning, say farewell at the end, and that's actually my entire experience in that meeting. And it was completely useless to me. I didn't need to write anything down. I didn't need to be there. And so that's a big one. But meetings are, like you're saying, are really crucial. But I think it's critical that you need to put as much stuff as you can into a meeting. Now, that's not saying that you should be having your technical conversations and your accounting conversations and your ideas for the future all in one meeting. Certainly not. I think it's sort of a one, one topic per meeting as far in terms of if the topics are big enough, of course, but like some teams will always have a morning meeting. Sometimes those are useless. The fact that if it's a meeting in which if someone's going to be late to work and that meeting didn't matter, that meeting's useless. That's, that's the way I'd say it. If it's like, well, like, oh, Jim, they couldn't show up today, that meeting's useless. But if Jim doesn't show up today and he needs to be caught up, that's a crucial meeting. I think that's sort of how you should gauge if your meeting is important enough. Sometimes it just isn't, and you just you should just post it on your company board, however, like whatever chat app you have, or post it in your group chat and say, we need to have this or whatever it is, or maybe you have a conversation with just one person really quick, and the other two topics that you're going to put in the meeting are just shared via, like I said, the company board or just share to the group chat, something like that. I think all that type of stuff, some people are meeting happy, I think is 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 also another point is what I'm trying to get at. Some people are just meeting happy. And I think that all, oftentimes will stem from people that aren't necessarily on the front lines. So developers are sort of more on the front lines. IT is sort of more on the front lines. Um, if you're working in a company like landscaping, the landscapers are on the front lines, but there's people that are the people in the office, let's take the landscaping company for a a non-technology example. The people that are in the office are going to be more meeting happy and more, more prone to calling you and stuff like that, because that's their environment. They, they're just sort of the office folk, you know, they're the accountants and those type of people that are doing the business administration stuff, but are not doing the product. They're not creating the product. They're not working with the product. They're not fixing the product as let's say in technology, bringing it back, 
like IT would fix the product, how a dev would create the product, those type of things. I think that the people that are in the office are the meeting happy ones oftentimes because that's just like how they thrive. And that's how the devs and everyone else, landscapers, they that's how they get pulled in. And then it's like, why is this guy... Why, why was he even here? You know, why was he looped into this? And it's just sort of like, well, you know, it's a meeting. Like, what do you want? It's like, well, this guy's busy. He's supposed to be digging this trench for this pool. Or this guy's coding. He's supposed to be making this slider. And he could have been done this slider. And then I could have talked to him about the slider after. But instead, he sat here, listened about listened about the shape of coins or some crazy thing. Or like the, the budgeting for the for the for the year. And he doesn't even care about the budgeting for the year. Short of if the company's going bankrupt and he's not going to be paid. So... I know my notes on this have been a bit ranty, but that's that's how meetings get blown out of proportion. So meetings should be as short as they can be, as packed as they can be within reason, and only include the people that actually need to be there. It's a it's a balancing act and it's really tough to to achieve all those points, but when it does get achieved, it's really nice. <laughs> I know, okay, so for example, we have a daily stand-up for for the projects that that I'm working on right now. Um, and it's one of those situations where it'll be like up and down sometimes it's been really up for the last probably six months or so. So I I don't remember even a downtime at this point, but there was a time when you're right. Like if I wasn't at the meeting, I wouldn't have to get caught up. There was a slow time and there, and there was a lot of times when, if that was the case, we would cancel the meeting. That's the thing. Well, that that's good. At least the, at least there's the flexibility there where it's like, guys, (laughs) If we all yeah. show up, we're just going to be talking about like what we're all having for lunch. So who cares? Exactly. You know? But for the last like six months or so, it's been literally like if I have to miss the meeting, I have kind of anxiety because I know how much I'm going to miss. And not only will I have to get cut up, I usually don't get cut up enough because so many like it's a meeting with like four or five, five or six people now. And everyone gives their updates and every everyone's updates are pretty intertwined with each other with each other's projects tasks and so like it's that's when you need a meeting <laughs> like oh th- that's that when you need a sense. daily meeting and the meeting lasts half an hour every day like we barely ever go over that so it's pretty pretty efficient and we're literally talking work for 28 of those 30 minutes so there is a way to achieve maximum efficiency in meetings to the point where a you're not you don't like dreading going to the meeting because it's information you actually need and you're not going to be bored out of your mind there. And B, you actually need the meeting to like do your tasks. But again, like Matt said, it's a really big balancing act. And I think having said that, we should do an episode on meetings. Yeah. And how to manage them and how to organize them and how to like have a productive daily stand-up versus an unproductive daily stand-up. How to, you know, communicate with your clients, how to set up a meeting. Like there's a lot that we can talk about in terms of meetings that I think will be valuable for people that are either just starting out and don't have a lot of meetings on their schedule and want to hear about how it goes and B for people that are are kind of more seasoned and have a bunch of useless meetings and maybe they can go in and be the change in their company. And also there's, we could also discuss other things too, uh, where what's the difference between a quick a quick phone call more frequently than a bigger meeting stuff like that i think that's a really great example of that cuz everyone experiences meetings freelancers corporate guys it everyone everyone experiences meetings at some point uh in their career 
mechanics, like everybody, like, you know, everybody in, in every field experiences some sort of meeting. So I think it's such a thing. And we can also c- cover another thing. I mean, this is more or less a teaser now for the next, for like a future episode, but also covering, and I'll mention this now because this is important, working as a team comes with experience. So like if your team has been working together for a month, they're going to have worse meetings than your team if they were working together for a year. As the team Absolutely. starts to become in sync, they know now what to bring to the meeting. They know what's expected. They know stuff like that. So your meetings are not going to be great right off the hop. You know, you're not going to be able to get that balance, but your balance will get better as the team gets better working as a team in general anyway. So just a small tidbit there. Yep. I, I added it to our Trello. So stay tuned for that episode on meetings. That would have been a perfect segue if Trello was the sponsor Oh, that would have been man. fantastic. Like I added it to our Trello, yeah, and I, I, by the way, like we wait. HTML the things uses Trello every day. Like, Damn it! <laughs> Next time, while you're talking, I'm gonna call the call the company call and Trello. get them to sponsor us live on the show. That would be man. That's that would crazy. be the most ridiculous transition ever. Like we're like just live on the show. Can you just sponsor us real quick and just throw them on? Throw them on the actual live show. I approve like, seven. Like I approve. Uh, what, what episode is this? I approve episode 97 of the HTML Things podcast. This is the CEO of Trello or something. Yeah, like. yeah, 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 yeah. It'd be so cool. Um, but yeah, okay. So other than that, I think we're we're good on the habits. Let's move on to the web news. Yeah. So this web news um, stems from I had a conversation uh, in uh, or with a couple of our Discord uh, folk, and then I was kind of thinking to myself. I, I've also been listening to a few podcasts in the space as well, and. What I'm kind of seeing, and this actually lends itself nicely to the Googling issue as well, and imposter syndrome, is that nobody really discusses how tech is difficult. Um, I kind of feel like we are in a fantasy world when it comes to careers of any type, and tech is included, where when we see these careers portrayed in something like a TV show or a movie, yes, I know they're pressed for time, but they are portrayed in such a way where it's just like, the guy will come up and be like, oh, I just had to redo the database. And that's sort of all you hear about the database. Now, certainly for entertainment purposes, of course, that's all you really want to hear. But it kind of portrays tech as easy. It sort of portrays it as very, very simple to even think of, think, to even figure out that the database needed to be redone, whatever that means, right? Just getting, figuring out or engineering a solution or thinking out or thinking up uh, ideas, workarounds, or determining what is wrong and what needs to be fixed if something is broken, that actually takes a lot of thought and a lot of expertise and a lot of research and everything. And so I just kind of wanted to touch on how I think this might be the number one underlying cause, and I have no statistics to back this up. This is just from my personal experience of imposter syndrome. Where I think that people are reading up on if they want to learn design. So they start looking at design and they their first few videos they probably watch are short. And they don't understand a lot of the terms in that video. And that person that's portraying, that's, that's let's say, listing out or talking about the design is throwing out terms because they expect the people to have a certain amount of experience. And maybe you're before that experience. You're immediately going to think to yourself, I'm not good enough for this. I don't like... Clearly, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what colors to choose. He knows the typography to choose, etc. Same goes for tech too. And that, and we've mentioned this a bunch of times, where there's other uh, tech podcasts or tech presentations or tech videos, tech content, where they talk at a level that expects the listener, the the viewer, 
to know a certain amount. And it makes their years and years and years and years and years of expertise seem simple because they're talking at a year of like, let's say year 10 of their career, year five of their career. And you might be on hour one of yours. And so I just kind of wanted to touch on, you know, how that affects imposter syndrome and how tech, even at year 10 is not easy. Yeah. I think, I think people don't talk about it because it's kind of a taboo topic. It's like, it's like the concept of the whole social media thing. So if you look at someone's social media, it's only going to show their, you know, accomplishments. It's only going to show them at their best because they've staged all these photographs and stuff. So you start looking at people and being like, oh, what am I doing? Like I'm screwing up because, you know, every second thing that I do is a, is a screw up. Uh, but what happens is, is that because all this content is out there and no one or a lot less people are talking about the difficulties of making that content or doing the, that coding or whatever, uh, you become self-conscious with yourself. You become, you look inwards and be like, is this my problem? Is like every, everyone else out there, like, look at all these YouTube videos of people doing all this really complex coding stuff. I can't even like, you know, make hello world appear on the screen. Is that my problem? And it's just one of those things where you have to battle through it a little bit and know that you're not the only one. You're not the only one struggling with all these issues because as soon as you look up an issue, and again, it's that fear of looking up issues. If you do spend some time and start Googling the issue, you'll see you're not the only one. And you'll see that you're ahead of some people. For the most part, you're always going to be ahead of someone because even if you started one hour ago, there's going to be people starting one minute before you and stuff like that. So you're, you're going to see that um, hierarchy. And that's going to make you feel a little bit better. And then you're going to get to a point where you're like, oh, I feel really good. And then you're going to get to an issue and it's going to make you feel a little bit down again because you feel like you should be able to solve it really quickly, but you're not solving it. And again, you're going to go through that situation where you're going to see the hierarchy. Like maybe like you will solve the issue and it took you a little bit longer, but other people are behind you and they're struggling and you can help them go up too. So it's all about perspective. Uh, It's all about looking behind and in front of you, always trying to get better at it, right? And a good example of this was in my stream. Uh, if anyone was in there, I had an issue with like initializing a Vue.js repo. Uh, and I spent half an hour through it. Like it's something that I've done, I don't know, 20, 30 times at this point, probably. And I still had an issue with it. And I still looked it up and I still did the Googling. And yeah, it felt a little bit like an imposter syndrome kind of situation. But I knew because like, it's just one of those experiences that it's good to see other people do. Like I know if I was looking at someone like Wes Boss or Scott Talinsky and he was suffering through an issue, uh, I'd feel better because we're not the only ones. You know what I mean? Like everyone, someone that's worked in 10 years and starts doing a project from scratch will have a few things that they just forgot or a few things that they didn't think of or something like that, that they'll have to look up and get through. It's just part of the process. It's one of those things like unless you have a photographic memory, uh, you're not going to be able to memorize all the little things that you do six months ago or seven months ago. Even if you've done them multiple times, it's just going to be a couple of things. Like my issue turned out to be a administrative privileges issue because I made a new account for my streaming and I didn't give it admin privileges. So I had to actually open up a command prompt with admin privileges. Everything was solved after that. So it's a stupid little thing like that. Like, again, I knew it, like I knew, I knew that that was going to, that, that could be a problem, but I couldn't remember, like I didn't remember it right off the bat. So I had to go through a couple troubleshooting steps and then I'm like, oh yeah, it's this. And that's fine. I'm glad I got it on tape. I got it. I'm glad I look like an idiot there and all that, because now people can hopefully look at that live stream and be like, okay, I'm not the only one. Well, that's the thing too, is especially with tech, 
things can go wrong at every little every little thing a typo an admin an admin privilege there could be something actually wrong with windows or mac or you know there could be anything it could be it could be a plethora of things you 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 before the show were talking about how you're trying to troubleshoot your computer right now and god knows what's wrong with that is it a ram stick is it nothing is it windows is it the hard drive what is it and even though we know how to check all of that you know we're not we're not privy to the issue we don't just know what the problem is some things will scream at you certainly but other things other things really really won't either and that was another thing that you and i also had discussed where we're it's good to have those type of things like you're troubleshooting in the live stream because a live stream is very much different than a video production. We're uploading our, our uh, Twitch streams. They're available on Twitch for X amount of days, whatever, whatever a new account on Twitch is allowed as VODs. But then I'm also uploading them to YouTube so people can go back and, and watch those. But I was telling you that the, 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 the streams I'm clearly labeling as streams because they're different than a production, literally different than a production. And if we had, let's say, cut, somehow cut down the stream to 30 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and fit all the stuff that you put into that stream in there, and just to get that time code on, on YouTube to be 20 minutes, we'd probably have more views on there. Now, I just uploaded it. Our YouTube channel small. has 12 views. Whatever. But let's say, you know, not, not outside of the realm with a title like that, that we could have had 100 views or a couple hundred views, right? Because some some people might be looking up how to do Elasticsearch on, with Vue.js and through JSON, through a JSON data set, Right? So that, that's something that people might click on. But like what I told you is when, when people, let's say YouTube that or Google, Google that, whatever, and our video shows up, they're looking for a quick solution. They're looking for that 10 minute video. They don't want to watch the live stream necessarily if they're looking for a tutorial. Whereas other people are using the live stream as one, they can interact live during the actual thing, but two, they're learning, but it's kind of like a video podcast for the, to these people. It's like a different subset of people or just maybe the same people, but at that time they're looking for something like that. And that produced video that we could have potentially made would not have shown the troubleshooting, it would not have shown the difficulties, would not have shown the elevated prompt, would not have shown anything. And then if somebody, let's say somebody like you goes in with our hypothetically 10 minute condensed produced little video goes in and has that elevated prompt issue, they're going to be like, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm done. And I guarantee tons of people have done, maybe not necessarily exactly the elevated prompt issue, but it doesn't matter what it is. They get one issue in to whatever they're doing. And then they're like, I'm done. I'm out of here. And it's because it's not really shown like you're saying, social media, or you mentioned, social media is very much, I'm not going to show, like, yesterday I fell asleep on the couch and almost fell off the couch, because I fell asleep <laughs> down here so hard, like, I passed right out, and then kind of woke up, like, half, like, dangling off the couch. The other day, the other day, like, so, my, my bed, this is a really weird thing, my bed is really high in the air, like, so high that if I fall off the bed, I'm going to, I'm for sure breaking my arm, or my shoulder, probably like a ninety percent chance of me breaking my shoulder. Like, like at least I'd say, not a, a, as a non-doctor, I'm worried. <laughs> but I like having my bed high up. It, it, yes, that's weird. Okay, um, but I woke up and I, for some reason, was jamming like full speed. I was like half off the bed and I was jamming my elbow into my the corner of my nightstand to the point where, like, if I hadn't woken up at that point, like there'd have been blood everywhere. 
like absolutely everywhere. I don't know how long I had been there or how gradual <laughs> that had been, but I'm not going to take a selfie at that moment and be like, look what I did. Woke up like this, like the classic, oh, I just woke up like this. I would have woke up. My hair's all screwed up. I'm freaking hanging off a thing. I got a big dent in my elbow. <laughs> <laughs> But if we were, I mean, people should start taking selfies of themselves actually when they wake up. I feel like that should be a movement. Maybe you can start it, Matt. Start the actual, the actual woke up or, like this, where it's yeah, like exactly, sometimes yeah, my one beard hair like goes straight up for some reason, like just crazy yeah, crap, just just dangling off your freaking bed. <laughs> but like, That's so good. But what I mean is, is a live stream would have captured that, and then if someone else had the same issue, I don't know how many people would have had the same problem. But like, I'm. Sh- kind of sure that someone else did out there um (laughs) i want i want people to chime in have you ever woken up half off the bed jamming your elbow into your uh dresser or your nightstand specifically on a bed that's too high and and is an actual fall risk (laughs) like the hospital like hospital beds can rise up and down depending on the model mine is like higher than that as a default (laughs) wow yeah but anyway but you know what i mean you know if I were to take a selfie that morning, it's like, damn, I gotta go shower, get all ready, and then be like, all right, selfie, right? You're only showing the very best, the produced, but no, anyone who woke up that morning who was just laying in bed might be like, well, I look like an idiot, you know? And so that's sort of that's sort of where this, the difficulty, or the work the work put forth, or the expertise gained, or the experience gained, isn't ever really shown. Um. If you think about it, actually, everyone has their own unique um, path of experience. Even even if it's something as simple as you did a high school job doing or like you did a part time job during high school or college or something. Uh, so, for example, I'm extremely fast at cleaning. That's because I used to work in a factory cleaning massive industrial machines. That was a that was a part time job that I did during college. And that's it. I didn't have a, I didn't have years and years and years of experience. I didn't, you know, I did it part time. So I wasn't even full time when I was doing it, but I'm still to this day fast at cleaning. I know what chemicals to use. I know what cleaner to use. I know what, how long to wait. I know how to mix the thing. I am extremely fast at it. And that's just, that's just the reality behind it. And that's because I have that little weird piece of expertise that, so you can imagine if somebody worked in a, in a photo uh, gallery or something, as even a high schooler or they did it part-time or they just did it for money for full-time for a bit and they didn't have a massive amount of expertise and then they go into the design field even though the the design is more than just photography they still have a bit of like that visual angle and they know what kind of looks good and that's where that kind of comes in and so you might be like feel like an idiot be like man that guy has been working here for a month and he knows more than me and i'm only i've been here for six months but it's like yeah but he also has two years working in a photo gallery whereas that's different he can take the same sort of expertise that he's built up over the years. And we've touched on expertise like three, four times this episode. You can t- bring up the expertise or he, or he can, he brings rather that expertise to the table. And that's so critical. You're pro- um, one of our teachers, our programming teacher. Um, he always said like, if he, if he doesn't need X thing, he just throws it out of his brain. Right. And so we would ask him other questions about other tech, about other, we, it was embedded. He would, we would, we would ask him other tech about other, uh, other questions about other processors and other microcontrollers and those type of things, things we were working on. And he would just say like, I don't know, like I would have to look at it because his expertise teaches him how to look at it. It doesn't teach him how to do the thing. And it's not, it's not easy 
which is critical for this sort of web news, it's not easy enough for him to just say like, yeah, you just get the driver. You just make a Bluetooth driver for it. Come on. But in a YouTube video, that's the only part that would make it in there. It's the, it's the Bluetooth driver. And that is the, and, and that, that is not pointing. I want to be clear. That is not saying that people who cut down videos shouldn't be doing that. You have to. Otherwise you'd be watching somebody put something together for like 14 hours every day. It'd be freaking ridiculous, right? The, a produced piece of content is a produced piece of content for a reason. It is cut down. It is all nice and everything like that. That's fine. But it's just, you have to remember that there was a bunch of production time put in to that thing. And that's where they, that's how they got to the end result. You're, there's, there's hours behind those minutes in the video to get the result. Exactly. I think the one thing that I want to kind of impart on people is you're not alone in this. That's the biggest thing is like if you're feeling like you're not learning fast enough or you're you're having issues where other people maybe aren't having issues, you're not alone. Like it's not a, a, like an uncommon thought that all of us have regardless of how, how many years of experience we have. It's, a, it's again that imposter syndrome talk. It's again whatever. Like just keep pushing through it uh, and learn from your mistakes. Learn at your own pace as fast as you can learn. Everyone has their own pace. Again, like, like you mentioned, if, if you've been at a company for six months and a guy comes there and one month later he's ahead, in, in perceivably ahead of you, don't get caught up in the fact that he's better than you or something. No, he just learns differently or he had a different background or uh, it's just we're just different people. It's not, it's not a race. It's not a competition in that sense. Do your best. Like don't slack off. Do your do what you can do, and you know you'll come out ahead as long as you're improving. That's what people are looking to see. Not everyone can be like a super genius or whatever. Like not everyone can can memorize everything and with one look. Like obviously those people have an advantage because they don't have to go through the process of looking up syntax every once in a while. That's but that's something that you can't compete with. There's no point in you sitting there and looking at a textbook and reading the the you know the syntax for PHP on how to. Uh, map an array into another array or another or a function a function that creates an array there's no point of you learning that reading it 15 times writing it out 15 times if you're only going to use it once or twice in your life and you can look it up then it's one of those things like it's just don't be scared to don't be scared that you don't know something that should be something that moves you forward instead of scares you. That's the kind of way that I look at it. If I don't know something, that's something that I can easily look like, not easily, but that, that's something that I can look up. That's my, if I, if I sit down in an interview and someone asks me a question that I don't know, I'll tell them the pro, the steps I would take to learn that thing. That's what I would want to see in my, like if I was interviewing someone else and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I think that's a good capstone, honestly. That's a good capstone statement, and I think that covers the topic. Honestly, um, I I'm ready to conclude. <laughs> I don't even I don't even Let's have feedback. Do I think that's a good capstone. That's a good ending, and um, I'll let our new outro uh, take us out. Unless you have anything else to add, there, Mike. Nope. But uh, um, before we do that, I'm going to uh, do the old Patreon or thank the old patrons. So uh, remember that we're also on that that Patreon. If you want to support the show, that's Patreon.com/slash/HTML. All the things. Check out the tiers. Give that thing a go. And many thanks to our three dollar tier patrons: Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. Find him at YouTube.com/slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at LocalPathComputing.com. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. 
Chris from the Self-Made Web Designer. Find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker. Find him at thewebhacker.com. And DL Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or review on the platform you're listening listening to this on, and I'm going to let this outro sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.